Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Andy Troutman. I'm a director here in AWS focused on our continuous delivery tools. So the tools that both Amazon engineers use on their day-to-day -day basis to ship code from their, their desktops, their development environments into integration and ultimately into production. I also own some of the uh, AWS services, particularly in the code suite. So uh, similar product space uh, focused on Sorry, uh, a couple people are calling out their headphones don't work. There's a couple empty seats you might want to grab other he headphones. <laughs> Hopefully, see if they work. Um, sorry. Uh, so I, I also own uh, some of the code services, so code commit, code pipeline, code deploy, focus on the same kind of pr uh, challenge, which is how do we ship code for our customers uh, onto the compute instances of their choice. That could be EC2, that could be EKS, that could be Lambda. Uh, and part of my day job, I get to meet with a lot of customers. And today's topic is uh, a perennial favorite. So uh, when I get to meet with customers, this one always comes up, which is how does Amazon approach building teams, building organizational structures? What are we trying to optimize for? As well as how does our organizational uh, structure get supported by the uh, services and our, and our technical architecture? So let's, uh, let's jump in. So uh, just to give you a quick kind of overview of what we're going to try and cover today. Uh, in order to really understand Amazon's approach to team building and organizational structure, we need to understand what we're optimizing for. So we'll start with some of the foundations of Amazon's culture. Uh, I'll introduce the two pizza model to you. Uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, tech and its relationship to the way we build teams. Uh, you'll see that there's a definite symbiosis between uh, the way we're trying to organize as well as the uh, types of tech that we're using. Uh, then we'll go a little deeper. We'll go a little bit deeper into the details, the ground truth of a two-pizza team. What, is it, what does a team actually do all day? What are they responsible for? How do they actually operate? Uh, then we'll pop up a level, and we'll talk about collections of teams. So we'll talk about org, org structure and how we get work done across the organization. Uh, and then uh, with any time left, we'll, we'll talk about some of the challenges of the model. So you know, uh, everything has its trade-offs. We'll talk about some of the common issues uh, that we encounter uh, in the way we organize and our approaches to try to mitigate or to reduce those problems. So lots to discuss, let's go ahead and jump in. So uh, if you are familiar uh, at all with Amazon's culture, if you've done any reading about Amazon's culture, you've probably already encountered our, encountered our leadership principles. If you haven't, uh, you know, pick your favorite search engine of choice and type in Amazon leadership principles and you'll end up at a web page that looks pretty much just like that. Uh, these are sort of the values and principles that we uh, have tried to build the company around and tried to espouse when new people join us and, uh, as Amazonians. There's 13 of them. They have a very brief, short text. It's, it's worth the five minutes, in my opinion, to read them and understand them. Um, it's not a coincidence that customer obsession is the very top one, right? So they're, they're not organized in any kind of logical order other than, I would say, customer obsession is absolutely paramount to the way we approach nearly all problems at Amazon. So, uh, in order to really understand how we're building teams, you need to understand sort of uh, what we're trying to optimize for. In our case, we want to move as quickly as we can for the customer, right? And when we talk about that, there's really, you know, uh, Amazon's approach to building products can be uh, very simple. Uh, we start with a theory of the case, so we start by observing our customer. Uh, with AWS, we run a B2B business, so we get to talk to customers all the time. We're constantly asking customers what they want what their problems are, what their pain points are. 
On the Amazon.com side, it's a little more analytical where we're watching how customers use the, the web services and the products uh, and trying to draw an inference about what they're trying to do, right? So we're trying to understand what the, what the problems that our customers are encountering are or what they're trying to accomplish with our services and our platforms. Then our goal is to deliver something for them, right? So uh, as quickly as we possibly can. And bias for action is the name of the game. So this is, I'll introduce the second Amazon leadership principle that we'll talk about today. Uh, we're big believers that speed matters in business, right? So the quicker that we can iterate through this process of developing a theory about what the customer wants, building a solution, understanding how they use it, collecting feedback and trying again, uh, the better, right? So Amazon absolutely believes in an iterative approach to nearly everything we do. Uh, our goal is to turn this crank as fast as we can, right? So we, we really do want to iterate our way to success by giving customers solutions and making them better, 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 better. Uh, we believe that it is a much better way to do things than a big bang approach. We try to guess at what customers want and hope we get it right. Uh, we would much rather release something lean uh, and put it in customer hands and, and let customers help us uh, evolve the product into what they need. And so uh, if we're going to do that, if we're going to build uh, products and rapidly iterate on them and improve them, uh, we need to be able to move very fast. And we know over time that if we have a lot of people that, are, that we need to coordinate across in order to perform that, uh, that iterative cycle, it tends to not work. So the more stakeholders internally that we have that need to be part of the decision-making process, the longer it takes. The more people we have to get on the same page and the more decisions we have to drive across different groups. And so we seek to, with our organizational structure and our team building approach, to reduce the amount of coupling between teams as much as we possibly can. Uh, and at the very foundation of this is what we call the two pizza team. So when we build teams, when we, build, when we think about how we're going to structure teams, we want those teams to, uh, to be highly autonomous and empowered to solve a particular customer problem. Right? And so the name of the game is really to treat them like a little miniature startup. When people ask me what does Amazon look like organizationally, I usually say it looks like a federation of startups. There's a bunch of these teams. They each have a charter. They have some, some uh, customer problem, some tangible outcome that they want to achieve for the customer. And then they are given a lot of power and decision-making autonomy to do what is right for their customer. Right? So they, they get to pick uh, how they measure themselves, their, the, how they're going to operate the services. They get to pick the implementation details. They pick the technology they're going to use. We really do, as much as we can, push decision-making down into that two pizza team uh, so that they don't have to uh, have suffer high coordination costs to get anything done. Uh, why is it a two pizza team? So many years ago, uh, we were talking and uh, we, we had this philosophical debate, how big can a team get before it's a problem, right? So uh, how big of a team uh, is too big and it kind of collapses under its own weight? Uh, and someone flippantly said, you know, probably no more than what you could feed with two pizzas. So uh, indeed, that is how we build teams. Uh, the average team size is still six to eight, but the variance is high. So if you put me to a bet, I could probably eat two pizzas by myself, but that probably wouldn't be a very effective team. Most of our teams fall into this range, six to eight people. And that's, that's still the ground truth today. This isn't something from the past. So hopefully that gives you a sense uh, at a high level of what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to optimize our business for rapid iterative cycles. Uh, and we're doing that by building teams with a high degree of autonomy. Uh, let's now turn and take a look at um, how, the, how our technical approach to building services and technology complements and supports this model. So as we discussed a little bit previously, you know, the name of the game is staying productive with many teams. We don't want teams constantly butting heads. We don't want 
high coordination overhead uh, for them to do that. And so uh, let's go back in time a little bit. Before we adopted this mode of operation, before we were truly big enough to have to really think about organizational structure, Amazon looked like your typical mid-90s startup. We had a big monolithic database. The uh, Amazon book company, ABC, uh, was the database. All teams pretty much participated in uh, writing code against a singular database. There was no real lines of ownership or clarity. And uh, this worked for quite a while, but as we started to get bigger, as, as more and more people came on and joined us, and as we started to achieve some, some uh, monicum of success and scale, uh, we ground to a halt, right? We, we quickly became impossible for people to make progress because we were constantly stepping on each other's toes. Every time someone would try to manipulate or change the way the database worked or, or uh, access data in a, new, in a new pattern, it caused downstream problems for teams or, or individuals that they didn't anticipate. And so we were, we were at loggerheads and not really making progress. And so um, this was a real moment, of, a catalyzing moment of change for us. And we, we needed to start rethinking how we did things. And so at that time, Amazon uh, did two things. We started to change the culture. We started to think about how we were going to do team building and organizational structure. And we started to think about what tech we would use to solve this problem. And so web services became what we rallied around, right? So we were very uh, early and enthusiastic adopters of a service-oriented architecture. And so some of the principal advantages of a service-oriented architecture uh, the TLDR is loose coupling, right? So uh, what we did was, once we started to take this monolithic database, we started to pull things out of it. We started to pull business logic in different domains out of the database and establish very clear API contracts. So every, everything that uh, you needed to do needed to happen through a programmatic interface, right? And that, that interface was viewed as a, a contract between teams and between groups, right? And it was intended to be hardened. So changing the interface was verboten. However, as long as the interface was maintained, you had a lot of flexibility to change the back end, right? And so the other thing we did when we built these APIs is we told everyone that anyone in the company can call your API. So we treated them as publicly available internal to the ecosystem of Amazon. This had a couple knock-on effects, which was because everything was treated as, as publicly available, teams from the start had to think about multi-tenancy and scalability because they really couldn't uh, easily anticipate how popular the services they were, they were building were going to be and who was going to use them. So it kind of drove a lot of uh, a quality and pressure to, to build things uh, with scale in mind because uh, we really weren't sure where we were going to end up. And then finally, we banned access of data outside of the APIs, right? And you know, I'm presenting this as like a big bang, but this happened iteratively over time. We slowly pulled different, different pieces of the business domain out of the centralized database, started to put it behind services, and started getting people to call through those, those publicly available APIs. There were a lot of secondary and tertiary effects of moving to web services that uh, proved positive for uh, you know, the organizational structure and, and the goal of, of letting teams iterate faster. Because all these APIs were publicly available and documented and self-discoverable, the code base was, uh, was and still is open to anyone in the company to, to search and peruse. It allowed teams to self-serve to a very high degree. They could go figure out which teams uh, had services that they needed to leverage or they would want to leverage, and they could go onboard and get started without that team's permission, right? So just like when you use AWS, you don't have to call us and ask for permission. You can go on the website, uh, sign, in, uh, sign up for an account, and off you go. Um, we don't have to negotiate anything to get going. Uh, this was, this was uh, absolutely va uh, incredibly valuable for that loose coupling, right? No, uh, uh, smaller teams no longer had to get DDoSed by lots of 
customers coming to them and ask, asking for permission and coordinating usage of their APIs. They could just get going. Another nice aspect of web services is that much, if not all, of the implementation details are behind the facade of the API. So very little about how the actual service works in the back end is exposed to customers. So long as that API contract can be maintained, teams got a lot of freedom and flexibility to change how the services worked, so long as they could maintain that, uh, that contract. And indeed, if you go look at web services that we offer to customers, they're, they're constantly changing. So uh, S3 does not look like S3 when we launched it. It's been re-architected many, many times. We've changed, we've optimized it, we've scaled it out. Uh, it's constantly being iterated on and changed. And all of that change is largely uh, hidden and abstracted from the customer. So it gives the teams a ton of flexibility to, uh, to change the way that they uh, implement solutions on the back end. Uh, and this proved very valuable because we were able to factor out common problems into highly utilized services uh, again and again. So we, we were able to, in this ecosystem of programmatic interfaces and all these APIs, uh, we started to organically converge. So we started to see common patterns emerge. Certain uh, APIs proved very popular and, and highly reusable. Uh, and when we found aspects of an API that uh, were more foundational, in nature, we could abstract those, we could turn those into their own service, and we could have multiple callers for them. And that, uh, that annealing process, that process of whittling things down into sort of foundational building blocks really became the prototype or the impetus for Amazon Web Services. So we started to realize some of the things we were building were very computer science basics, kind of fundamental building blocks. So uh, queuing systems, uh, workflow systems, uh, compute on demand, storage, all of those things emerged out of our own internal needs as we started to refactor services. Uh, I don't believe you, you might be saying. <laughs> so did it really happen in an organic fashion? I find that when I talk to people about Amazon's decentralized nature, they find it hard to, the, the, the part that they're most uh, uneasy about is how do we actually standardize and converge? There are a couple uh, other leadership principles I'll introduce that I think played a big part in this. The first is frugality. So frugality is a principle in Amazon that where we want to fund, uh, fund teams and, and we want to resource things in a lean nature. We, we don't want to over-resource areas. We actually want to under-resource areas because we believe it causes teams to think scrappily and, uh, and uh, creatively about problem solving. And so these two pizza teams are, are funded in, this, in that exact way. They're relatively small to the, uh, to the challenge that they are given. Uh, and this creates a nice uh, back pressure on them and a positive reinforcement for them to not solve every problem. They can't, they're not, they're just simply not resourced to build castles, right? They're resourced to solve their business problem and their business problem alone. And that causes a lot of uh, incentivization inside of the company for them to go find web services and, and pre-canned solutions that they can leverage and get more work done, right? And so this, this very much helped uh, prevent this problem of, of sort of duplication of effort or, you know, a million copies of the same thing. At the same token, we do not want Borg culture. We don't want everyone to do everything the exact same way because that's how it's been done in the past. We worry that that would uh, hamper innovation and it wouldn't give these teams permission to try new things on behalf of the customer and to optimize for the customer. And so we, uh, to counterbalance uh, our, the, our, frugal, our frugal approach to building services, we also encourage uh, an invent and simplify culture. So in the short term, we're very tolerant of redundancy. We're perfectly happy to have teams uh, 
re-implement re the wheel in the short term, and we can trust that in the long term, we'll slowly standardize on, on common solutions. Sometimes, that, and that happens uh, because we have uh, a very internal marketplace of these services, right? So because all of these teams operate with a high degree of autonomy, they can choose their dependencies, they can move to new dependencies when they find a better way of solving things. And so it ends up being a bit of a Darwinian ecosystem. So uh, when a better solution emerges in the marketplace, teams will move to it. Uh, sometimes the team that it, uh, the service that it is replacing will move to it and basically plumb its whole back end through to the new implementation if it ends up being better. We also see in a lot of these cases that uh, sometimes solutions look the same on the outside and, the, and our initial reaction is, well, we're building the wheel again. But when we actually get into the details and the team start to implement and solve the problem, they end up being different. They end up providing discrete and, and uh, unique value. It's very hard to anticipate that, and so we try to encourage a, a culture of experimentation. We want to see what emerges from trying new things. Okay, so hopefully you've gotten a sense of what we're trying to optimize for. We're trying to iterate as quickly as we can. We picked up web services because it gives us a lot of flexibility to decouple teams and, and uh, systems. Let's take a look at the day-to-day -day operations of one of these teams. So what is a team actually doing with itself? So usually when I wrap people's heads around the, the, the basic model, a highly decentralized organization, and the fact that we're trying to treat these teams like little services, they have full ownership. You know, the next most common question, well, what do they really own? Like, what does full ownership entail? Uh, do they have to hire uh, for themselves? Do they have to run their own marketing campaigns? How does it work? So let's take a look at uh, how to form a new two-pizza team in Amazon. I think that will give you a good intuition for the, the types of foundational decisions the team is responsible for. So when we're going to go build a new uh, system or solution, we usually start with a problem. Either it's a problem that someone at the company has identified, or it's a reported problem from a customer that doesn't have a good owner. And from that problem, we define a couple things. The first thing is we uh, create a press release and a frequently asked questions. So again, this is a very standard cultural artifact of Amazon. If you're familiar with Amazon at all, you've probably encountered the press release in FAQ. If not, when, before we start uh, writing a single line of code or trying to solve a problem, we actually write a forward-looking document, which would be the press release we would release to customers. And it's trying to answer the questions of, what is the problem that a customer is experiencing? How is our solution going to enter the market? How is it going to solve that problem? What will people say about it? And so we're really trying to think about the end state first, right? What is the customer going to say and experience when we solve this problem, right? So in the beginning, we used to bang rocks together to make sparks, to hopefully make fire, but then we invented the big, big lighter, and now everyone's running around with torches, it's very happy, that kind of thing. So we're, we're thinking about, like, what is the end state we want to get to? And then we backcast to a solution, right? So we use that end state as a north star for building something. The frequently asked questions is really an opportunity to go a little bit deeper and to try to draw lines around the solution, right? So you don't want to end up with a everything solution for everyone. There's always going to be caveats and limitations. The fact is where we start to flush out those things. Who is the solution for? Who is it not for? What is it going to be good at? What are the, its limitations? What are the things that we're not going to be able to launch at uh, first? And what features do we anticipate people will want? Again, we believe in launching things very lean, so we want to talk about what is the smallest thing that solves a valuable problem that we can put in customers' hands and start learning. Once we believe we have a, uh, a good definition of end state, we can start building the team. And so we'll start hiring. Most teams start off very small. It could be a single dev manager. It could be a single senior engineer or principal, maybe the pair of the two. 
uh, and the team will start to set team level tenets. So tenets are really a, a value system locally for that team's problem space and domain. And we ask teams to think about tenants, think about what they're going to value uh, in, the, in the problem space and the solution that they're building to help them tie break at times of ambiguity. So as they are building a, a solution, there's going to be lots of different decision points and trade-offs that they're going to have to make. We find that, that they, if they thought up front about their tenants and values, they make better decisions. So as an example of a tenant, in my own space, my teams are uh, in charge of developer tools. So we're thinking about the, the software engineer as the customer. We're thinking about uh, uh, the, the development lifecycle. And so one of our very early tenants was we wanted to build general purpose solutions as much as possible. So we wanted things to really be, uh, to a high degree, technology and language agnostic. We wanted them to be very foundational uh, and so they could be used for a broad set of use cases. We wanted them to be as extensible as possible, so focusing more on the ability for people to add on to them than to try and hit a very deep marketplace, right? We could have gone a completely different way. We could have said, we are going to start with Java and we're going to build the best possible release process for Java and then we'll go from there. We felt it was more important to, to build something broadly that customers could use. So that was an example of a tenant that we chose uh, that helps us make decisions in the moment when we're trying to firefight between different priorities and different things. Are we, trying to, are we being true to ourselves or are we not? And then finally, metrics. So uh, Amazon loves metrics. I spent a large portion of my day looking at graphs and, and uh, scrolling through dashboards. We asked, we asked this two pizza team to define their own metrics. They're, they're customer facing metrics. So what are the empirical things we can measure which are indications of success? Sometimes problems cannot be directly measured. Sometimes problems are very abstract. But what is the proxy metric that we can use that suggests that we're solving the problem in the way we intended to? We also think about operational metrics. How do we know that the system is performing and functioning in the way the customer is expecting? Well, uh, what is an acceptable latency for the service? What is an acceptable response rate? How much outage is, is an acceptable amount of outage? Can we tolerate any kind of data loss? Or is, or is, uh, is a redundancy of data a, a key feature of the service? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We, we ask the team to go work through what are the key metrics for success? Uh, what are the key workflows through the system that we're going to measure? And, uh, and what uh, metrics do we want to hit for those key workflows? The team owns all of that. So that's how a team uh, gets off the ground and starts to be formed. So as I said earlier, we usually start very lean. A team is usually uh, one or two people when it starts, and, the, and they're going to be sort of the foundational uh, developers of those artifacts. But once we decide to start building something, we're going to add, of course, a workforce. We're going to try and grow this team to be the six to eight uh, members to, to, to build the, the new service or the new offering for customers. So what is that team responsible for? Well, once we actually get a solution out into the marketplace, Work kind of falls into three, three pillars. There's, there's certainly more than this, but uh, I would say the lion's share of what a team is doing falls into one of these three buckets. So priority zero is, of course, security. We're running uh, publicly available uh, web services on the, on the internet. If customers cannot trust that Amazon is maintaining their privacy and availability, uh, we don't really have a business. So the team is responsible for security. They're, they're responsible for threat modeling their systems. They're responsible for working with other two pizza teams that own uh, the AWS security standard and, uh, and, uh, and hardening the system. They're responsible for uh, working with penetration testers and penetration testing on a regular basis to make sure that we're upholding our API contracts. They're responsible for integrating with our identity and access management systems, et cetera. They, they own the security boundary for their system. 
There are professionals that they can leverage inside of the company to help them get the best result, but they need to be thinking about security. They can't offload it to a different, to a third party or someone else in the company to think about. It's their responsibility. Availability, likewise, they own carrying the pager for the system. They own the on-call rotation. They own the dashboarding and metrics and monitoring that they're going to use to make sure that the system is up and running and available. They own the QA process. They own testing their system. They own releasing the system. They own all of that. And then finally, if they have any time left in their day job, they actually own adding new features, right? So they own the, uh, the, the evolution of the product over time, right? Uh, when a team, so, so they own all of that. It's a lot. Uh, and so, of course, you know, um, this model of, of holistic ownership is sometimes referred to as DevOps in, in the broader community. Maybe to just clarify Amazon's flavor of DevOps, because I think DevOps is an umbrella term that can mean many, many different things to many, many different groups. Amazon tends to favor a model where we hire uh, engineers and we, uh, or really just the entire team, and we ask them to wear many hats, right? So we, we hire pretty consistently, and then we want people to be comfortable operating in different levels of abstraction. Uh, one day they may be working on the website, the next day they may be trying to troubleshoot the back end. Uh, likewise, uh, software managers are wearing many hats. They're acting uh, in a lead uh, engineering role. They're also acting as the people manager. They're also, uh, in absence of a product manager, thinking about the product direction. That's in partnership with senior engineers as well. Like, all responsibilities are, are part of the entire team. We have an, another Am uh, leadership principle at Amazon called ownership, which is no job is not my job, right? So we don't ever want people to say, well, that's not my job. That's not in my charter, right? Your job is to make uh, your problem space successful, and so we have a mentality of pick up what needs to be picked up, help each other out. Um, this is somewhat different than uh, other approaches to DevOps, where it's more about combining domain specialties, where you may have a couple people that are more into uh, SRE model or support model. Uh, you may uh, combine them with a couple uh, software development engineers, and then you may have a couple uh, QA people or, or a product manager. Uh, Amazon doesn't tend to, to follow that model. There's nothing wrong with that model. It works perfectly well. But we, we tend to uh, instead um, build, a, build a more homogenous team and ask them to wear many hats. Um, so how do they accomplish this? So we have this little 68-person team. Hopefully I've motivated that they have a lot of responsibility and they're very busy. How do they manage to punch above their weight and actually get a lot done? So how do we build scalable web services with a small team and grow them and keep iterating on them? Well, we're back to the service-oriented ecosystem that we have. Everything in Amazon is programmatic in nature, right? Everything that we do has an API that you can access to do work for you. And it's a heavily utilized system. So a lot of problems are solved for you. So this is where we diverge a little bit from a traditional startup, which unfortunately has to solve a lot of problems themselves. They have to pick how they're going to manage the release process. They have to pick the tooling and the monitoring stack. If they're not uh, leveraging web services that are run for them, they have to operate and maintain all of that ecosystem. In our world, a lot of that is owned by a separate two pizza team and is managed on a, on a team's behalf, and they can avail themselves to it. They're not required to use any of this technology, but they're certainly incentivized to, because again, we're running these teams very lean, and uh, they, don't, they, wanna, they want to own and solve their customer problem. They don't want to have to think about every problem to solve. And so as an example, uh, here's, here, these are just a few of the things that kind of come out of the box. So as I mentioned before, I own our, our developer tools. So from day one, if they're building a, a, a standard web service, they're, they're getting a build fleet. They're getting the software release pipelining system. They're getting deployment systems that target the different compute types we have. And these products over time have become very mature. So they're very feature rich. They're, they have lots of 
nice features like automatic rollbacks on alarming. Uh, the metrics and monitoring stack is very rich. Out of the box, you get a, a ton of default metrics for you available. Uh, you get automatically generated dashboarding for you for common metrics, and then you can augment it to, to your heart's content. Uh, on the, on the alarming side, you know, you, you have a standard issue management system. You have a real-time management system, so you, you get the pager tools, the on-call rotation tools. You get the real-time operations. So all of this is available for teams to leverage. And uh, this is really the secret sauce that allows the small team to get a, a lot of work done. There's a huge foundation. We're, I didn't mention it here, but you, know, you also have all of the AWS services. So you don't have to go figure out how to do blob storage for yourself. You can just go throw things in S3 like, like our customers do. So a lot of this allows the team to be smaller and to get more work done than you know, your typical startup. Okay, so hopefully that gives you a sense of what the local team is doing on a daily basis and all the, the problems they encounter and, uh, and the work they're responsible for. Let's go up a level and talk about the organization and how we think about many teams. So as we talked about before, teams are six to eight people. We have a lot of engineers distributed across the globe, so that means many, many, many two pizza teams. We have two pizza teams all over the world. So what do we do with them? How do we, uh, how do we keep all of these cats uh, herded in the same general direction? Um, this is probably the least peculiar part of our, uh, of our uh, process. We, we arrange things hierarchically, just like nearly every company in the world does. So um, we're, not, we're not totally flat, although uh, the tree, our organizational structure is as flat as possible. Uh, what are the roles within that hierarchy? So senior managers are typically managing collections of two pizza teams uh, in a, in a uh, interrelated domain. So uh, for example, if we took um, EC2 as an example, EC2 is, made, is, a, is a very large API set. There's a lot of functionality under the hood of EC2. There are many two pizza teams that work on EC2. A senior manager may be part of one domain of EC2. So we may have a senior manager who has multiple two pizza teams working under them that are focused on the problems of virtualization. And within them, those two pizza teams may have different aspects of the virtualization problem that they need to solve. Uh, how do we pull content across the network efficiently and, and quickly? How do we make sure that the virtualization layer is, is secured and maintained? These are different problems that can be separated into different teams. Uh, likewise, there may be a separate senior manager with a separate set of resources focused on the spot market. So how do, how do customers resale unused compute instances? How do we think about that? Another group may be thinking about AMI creation and management. You know, there are many, many two pizza teams and hierarchies that live under the single service facade of EC2. Um, higher levels of management, directorships, those are typically a portfolio model. So they may be owning multiple aspects of a service or, or, or of a domain uh, that are a little bit more abstract. So just to take my own area, for example, uh, in the software release tooling space, you know, I own the systems in charge of doing last mile deployment, so configuration management and setting up servers or deploying lambdas and, and uh, shunting traffic to them. Uh, I also own the pipelining systems, which is the flow control across different uh, regions, availability zones, and, and fault domains. I also own the build systems, the testing systems. These are very, these are separate but related domains, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, Let's talk about two different models of ownership within that organizational structure and that hierarchy. The first and the most common one is a single-threaded owner. So a single-threaded owner is a leader that has both the resources to get a job done and the responsibility to do the job. So that could be a manager on one of these two pizza teams. It could be a senior manager with a couple teams and a, and a slightly broader charter. But, that, but essentially, um, the single-threaded owner 
has resources and charter and essentially can kind of steer the ship in the way that they want. As I said, uh, we treat two pizza teams as much as we can like startups. So I always think of the analogy for more senior levels of management as being a board of directorship. And we try to, uh, we try to treat uh, more senior levels of management as a board of directorship. By and large, our more senior levels of management, a lot of their time is spent you know, uh, thinking more broadly. So they clearly have a broader perspective. You know, at the director level, we're, we're thinking of portfolios of products and how they interrelate. Uh, part of their job is to kind of educate the two pizza teams about what's going and uh, what initiatives are happening in the broader Amazon ecosystem, how they can participate, what opportunities there are for them. Uh, the, the board of directorship is also forms an auditing function, right? So we want to make sure that those two pizza teams are making forward progress and they're succeeding. Uh, if, the, if they've already launched, how are they doing post-launch? Our uh, operations is a big area of focus for more senior levels of leadership. Are we operating the service in the way that we wanted to? Are we keeping our promises to our customers? How are the services doing? Are they popular? Uh, what, what is missing? What are we learning? So there's an auditing process happening there. And finally, there's a coaching process. Many of our senior leadership uh, rose through the ranks. Many of them started as engineers or as product managers themselves and moved their way up. So, so they have a lot of experience building two pizza teams and successfully launching services. And they're there as a coach and a mentor for those two pizza teams to help them also achieve similar success. Just like a board of directorship, uh, when things go badly, they do have the authority to exercise control over a two-pizza team. Uh, just like a board of directors doesn't want to do that, doesn't want to overrule um, the leader of a company, we don't want to either, right? So we avoid this at all costs. We really only step in and exercise authority over a two-pizza team when we feel like things have gone significantly wrong, right? If, if the team is in a state of actively failing or isn't able to make forward progress, that's really the only time we really want to get in and get involved. Otherwise, we want to keep keep that team as autonomous as we possibly can. So that's the easy job, <laughs> the single-threaded owner. Single-threaded leaders uh, is another uh, type of leadership that you'll encounter at Amazon. And it has all the responsibility to get something done, but none of the resources to actually make it happen. Examples of this would be really cross-cutting uh, pieces of functionality. Uh, for the Amazon.com website. We want the search box to be in the same place on every page. We want it to work. So we need, to, we need all of the different types of data we want to be able to search on to be indexable and accessible. Uh, within AWS, there are very few must-use services, but IAM is one of them. We want everyone to use the same common identity and access management services. There's no sense in having teams try to reinvent the identity and access management wheel. As customers, that would drive you crazy if you had to think of 20 different ways to configure and, and uh, access manager services. So we, we ask everyone to, to back a, a single solution in, in that case. Et cetera, et cetera. Many of the, many of the common cross-cutting things are, are for consistency's sake. Uh, now, we could fund a team to just go add IAM everywhere it needed to be, but that would be a team of thousands, and it really kind of breaks our ownership model. Instead, we have single-threaded leaders whose job it is to make sure that consistency is maintained across the platform. And the way that they do that is really earning trust, which is another Amazon leadership principle. Their job is to influence and to convince teams that the work that we need to do is valuable and important to our customer at large and the customer in the local context, right? So their job is very much one of influence and trying to drive change across the system. So let's talk a little bit about uh, how that single-threaded leader gets work done in this completely decentralized and crazy ecosystem. So what are some of the tools uh, in, uh, in its tackle box. The first one I'll talk about is escalation. So 
Escalation is not taboo at Amazon. Uh, escalation is not taboo at Amazon. Escalation is not taboo at Amazon. So in many cultures, you may encounter escalation as, uh, or view escalation as the process failing. So teams couldn't work it out. They had to escalate. At Amazon, we want escalation to happen rapidly. We want it to happen frequently. Anytime we have a, a conflict in resources or prioritization, we want to move up the hierarchy as quickly as we can and find a common decision maker between teams. We want to make a decision quickly. Therefore, we don't want teams to sit in a state of stasis or argumentation locally, not really able to make any progress. We would rather escalate those problems up the hierarchy as quickly as we can. Amazon is a very document-driven culture. We, we, uh, we abhor slideshows, ironically. Here I am doing a slideshow. And we much prefer documents. It would be hard to get people to come to a conference and read documents, I think. But in our own uh, ecosystem, when we have one of these conflicts, we solve it with a narrative document. So we actually ask the teams to get together and to collectively write a one, a three, or a six-page document. That document's going to cover what are the things that are in conflict? Are we short on resources? Is there just a prioritization discussion? Or do we disagree fundamentally about which way to go? Right? So what is the problem? What are the different options that the, the two teams have proposed or explored? What are the uh, agreed upon pros and cons of those options? So what, what do we anticipate being the problems if we go uh, with path A or path B? And then at the end, we expect the team to, uh, to provide a recommendation for, for how to go forward. We may not take that recommendation, but we think it's important that the team own the, in, the initial bid on what, what, what we should go forward with. Then everyone's going to get in a room and we're going to read that document in silence so we can all deeply understand what's going on. And then we'll have a discussion. So I'll introduce another leadership principle from Amazon, which we call disagree and commit. Uh, that is not committing to disagreeing. I often have this confusion with my own teams. Uh, instead, we're focused on first uh, having an argument, having a debate, discussing the pros and cons. We like this to be a passionate debate. We want people to feel that they can say what's on their mind so we can get all the data on the table. And then we're going to make a decision, and we want everyone to commit to it. right? So what we don't want is a half commitment from a team. When we leave the room, our mental model is everyone is now on board with the decision we made, even if it's not the one that they would have made. And we're going to seek to make it as successful as possible. We don't want teams waiting or half committing to something for them to be able to say they that I told you so. I told you so really isn't acceptable at Amazon after we've reached this commit phase. We want to be able to move as quickly as we possibly can at that point. So we ask everyone to make that commitment once we've reached that decision point. So that's how escalation works. Um, the New York effect. Uh, New York, New York, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. When we build new solutions or we are going to roll out uh, a best practice or we're going to ask people to change the way they do their work, um, we, we, just like everyone else, we like early adopters. We will get the ball rolling slowly and smallly, and then, and then we will carry it forward. Something peculiar or unintuitive that we do is when we go to pick an early adopter, we try as hard as we can to pick an unassailably hard case to go solve first. Many teams and many approaches start by getting the ball rolling locally. So they'll pick, uh, they'll pick a friend of the family. They'll pick someone who's enthusiastic about their solution, someone who wants to work with them, and they'll make them a success. The problem with that model is that it doesn't build credibility with the larger organization that you, that you have a good solution or that you can solve their problem. So in Amazon, we don't want to do that. We actually try and go pick the team that is uh, most oversubscribed, has the hardest problem, and that doesn't really want to work with us. So <laughs> uh, to take an example from my own domain, when we were starting to move uh, the company to a continuous delivery model, so we wanted engineering teams to be able to check in code and then have that code 
flow through their tests, their integration, and ultimately to production in a fully automated fashion, so hands off, right? So we wanted the systems to, to own and control how the software rolled out the door. This was an incredibly controversial decision because it meant that engineering teams were losing control of how the software got released uh, and giving it over to automation systems. So there was a lot of fear and uncertainty about whether or not that would work and whether or not we could maintain our high operational bar in a continuous delivery model. So when we decided to do that, we went uh, to the credit card processing systems at Amazon.com. So if, if you're not an e-commerce expert, it turns out that the ability to uh, process credit cards is, is fundamental to the whole thing. I've been told that if you don't have that, you can't make money. So it seemed like a good place to get started. Uh, that team you know, is incredibly oversubscribed. They didn't really have the time to work with us. Um, but we did convince them to give it a shot. And we over-delivered for them. So we worked very hard to make them a success. And we achieved continuous delivery with the credit card processing system. Uh, and that paid for itself again and again and again as we went to the second, third, fifth, and 100th customer. Because when we went to that next customer, you know, we got the typical lines, which is, you know, continuous delivery, this is very exciting. I can't wait for this to happen. However, MySpace is very different. You don't understand. I'm a, I'm a special flower. We, could, we shouldn't start here. You should go get two, 300 more teams to do it first and then come back to me, right? Well, it was very powerful to be able to say, we've already got credit card processing doing this, all right? It's very hard to argue that that's not the hard case, right? Um, and that, be, that, that did a couple things. One, it kind of dried up the FUD a little bit. And it also let them know that, we, that this could be successful, right? That some of their uh, concerns were unfounded. And so, you know, highly recommend this as, as an approach. It's very hard to pull off, but it was incredibly valuable for us. Automation. Um, when we are driving one of these cross-organizational changes, we want to automate things as much as possible. It tends to follow a kind of standard playbook. I've represented this as an arrow because it tends to begin on the left and end on the right, but many of the steps in between overlap to a high degree. So don't view it as a purely sequential process. On the left-hand side, in the beginning, it's about awareness. It's about finding that first customer. It's about sending out a lot of emails. It's about meeting with uh, key stakeholders and, and making them aware that a change is coming. Hey, we're going to upgrade to a new version of Linux. Hey, we're going to ask everyone to uh, stop depending on an old version of Java, whatever it is. Right? There's many, many uh, cross-cutting campaigns that we want to drive. So the first thing is just to get people aware that it's coming. The earlier you can give them runway, the better. Right? The more time they can plan for it and integrate it into their very busy schedules. The next thing we do is automation to shut the door or to stop the bleeding. So for net new problems, so if a new pizza team is founded, we want them to be started on the right foot from day one, right? And so we want all the standard tools and processes that they may adopt to do the right thing by default. So for upgrading our version of the JVM, clearly when I go to build a new web service, it's going to launch on the correct version of JVM. It's not going to even allow you to use an old version, right? Et cetera, et cetera. So we want to make sure that we don't have a leaky bucket when we start to really drive change across this massive set of two pizza teams, uh, because it really makes it hard to get to zero, which is where we want to be. Once we've uh, figured out how to stop the bleeding for net new things, then we can actually start the, the hard part of automating for the rest of the system. By and large, because we are a service-driven uh, organization and a servant-driven culture, most things can be automated at Amazon. This is another advantage of uh, turning your company into a set of APIs. Usually you can find a couple uh, teams where the change needs to be made and you can work with them to, to build the automation. And then the rest of the team, uh, the rest of the ecosystem that's, that's leveraging the more foundational services kind of gets it for free. Our goal is to make it as cheap as possible and as free as possible for as many teams as possible 
when we want to drive broad organizational change. You're never going to get to 100 with automation. Uh, there's always going to be some teams that are not using the standard approach or not adopting the standard model. And they're, and they're fortunately going to suffer a tax to, to, um, for coloring outside of the lines. The very last step is, the, is what most people think of as the organizational change, which is that final campaigning. By the time we get to campaigning, you know, which is sort of tracking to zero, uh, going and talking to all of the straggler teams and asking them to you know, make roadmap time and, and commit to a, to a date, that is a very thin sliver of the overall problem. We've hopefully solved the vast majority of the problem before we ever get to the point where we're campaigning and, uh, and uh, using shame as a tactic. Shame is the very last tactic, uh, and we try to avoid it as much as we possibly can. So um, this is somewhat intuitive. Uh, how is it that we are able to do so much automation in this highly decentralized two-pizza culture? Uh, most people intuitively think that because everyone is doing their own thing, it's really hard to automate or do anything on their behalf. Well, as I said, we run this highly leveraged service ecosystem. And we have single-threaded owners that run these foundational services. And we can go and work with them to, uh, to cause a big impact, right? a, a big positive impact right? for the company. We can get them to do some automation that will multiply its effectiveness across the company again and again and again. So unintuitively, this, this uh, decentralized web service approach that we have taken makes it really easy to program automation for the 80% case, uh, which, is, which proves incredibly valuable and allows us to drive kind of these broader changes that would otherwise prove pretty impossible to achieve. Okay, so hopefully that gives you a sense of uh, sort of how we organize at a high level, as well as some of our approaches to getting work done across the hierarchy and across the organization. Let's, uh, let's close with some of the, the problems of our model, both the two pizza model and the organizational model. So clearly, as we, we just spent a bunch of time talking about the first problem, which is that a driving change across a decentralized organization requires a lot of work. You know, uh, that's probably intuitive. It, uh, we don't have a silver bullet for that. We have a lot of processes and approaches that we think mitigates that problem to some extent. The next problem we encounter more locally within a two-pizza team is the five-pizza team. Right? So uh, when a team is successful, they grow. Right? They grow both in technical complexity and in headcount. They are solving an important problem, and typically people want more of that problem solved. And so teams just naturally go from that six to eight-person team bigger and bigger and bigger until they become the 12 or the 20-person team. There's a couple problems with big teams that we really don't like. Um, the first is they're really costly from a communication perspective. If you want to keep a large team on the same page about what everyone is doing, you're going to pay a lot of communication costs. Uh, there's a lot of coordination effort that you need in a large team. There's a lot more meetings. There's a lot more people speaking at stand-ups. There's a lot more uh, just organizational overhead. The other thing that happens when you have a big team is it's a proxy for a large technical surface area. And remember, we asked these two pizza teams to fully own and operate the service. So when these services get big and complex, it dilutes their ability to effectively manage the service. You can no longer hold the whole thing in your head, and thus little pockets of uh, specialization emerge. Right? So you, you end up within the, within the larger team having domain experts that know the details of how feature or functionality X works, and, and the rest of the team doesn't really know them. And that's a problem because when, a, when an operational problem happens, you now have to rely on that single person to be able to effectively manage it. You'll see this, you'll see this problem happen in our ecosystem uh, when you have to page in lots of extra people to solve an operational problem. Right? That's, kind of, that's the first warning sign that a team is getting too big, and, they, and the team can't deeply own and master the technology that they're responsible for. 
So we don't want that. We want, uh, we want the technical service area to be manageable by these teams. And so what we need to do is we need to break it up. Right? So when teams get large at Amazon, we're actively thinking about how do we mitosis them? How do we uh, split them back up into smaller teams uh, to make it effective again? And the, the playbook for this looks a lot like the playbook for founding a team. We're going to sit down and we're going to talk about what are the problems that have accreted into this area. Right? It, it happens very subtly and very uh, innocently. You know, like, uh, this is great, could it do X, right, is, is a classic thing. And, of course, our goal is to add more features and functionality. Over time, you, you start to grow many, many different problems and domains. So we, the first thing we think about is, what are the separable problems within a larger domain? What can we pull apart and give more singular ownership to? Once we have that, you know, it's the same process. We're going we're gonna to set tenants for the new uh, areas of ownership. We're going to pull apart the metrics and the monitoring. Because we're using services and they're highly refractable, we're going we're gonna, to uh, give a strong ownership of various microservices to various domains. If we need to, we will refactor things so ownership is clarified as best as possible. Right? And we will actively break up the, the large thing into, back into smaller things that can, again, move with a high degree of autonomy and, uh, and, and a decoupled nature. Um, I have found that you know, this is another thing that gives uh, organizational leaders some discomfort. Because any kind of organizational change is usually not welcomed with open arms. But what we've actually found is when a team starts start small and they feel productive and in charge of everything, they're largely happy. And as the thing grows, it feels like the experiment has left the lab. And they actually are losing control. And they start to feel slow. And they actually appreciate this. Right? So most of my teams, it's, they're coming to me and saying, like, this is getting to be too much. We need to think about how do we break it up. Right? So we found that it's much more of a push model than a pull model which is good. Uh, searches and demand. So the other problem we can have is when a very popular service has a lot of short-term critical, business critical needs that they, that they can't absorb. So remember our, our principle around frugality. We want to build very lean teams. We want to build very small teams. The problem with lean teams and small teams is they don't have any fat to absorb surges in demand. Right. So what do we do about that? You know, clearly, in the long term, we have to hire the team to be the appropriate size for the problem that they have. But in the short term, we, you know, hiring is slower than the, the business needs. So what do we do? So there's a couple of different approaches. We lump all of them under the umbrella of what we call away teams, which is this ability to flex resources from other areas temporarily into one of these two pizza teams. We get this advantage for a couple of reasons. One, uh, as I mentioned earlier, our operational model, uh, our DevOps model, is really we want generalists. Those generalists are usually a little, it's a little easier to pull a generalist out of one area and put them in another and have them be effective. We leverage a lot of the same tools and technologies and fundamental services. Our, fun, our, our service oriented architecture is relatively consistent. So there isn't as steep of a ramp up time or a learning curve to pull an engineer across from one group to another and have them start participating. The easiest form of this is a pull request. This is a very industry standard thing. This is essentially a bug report or a bug fix. We open, uh, as I said earlier, we have you know, completely open and searchable repositories. And we're, uh, we encourage people to take ownership of things that are, uh, uh, are not necessarily within their two pizza teams. So if you, if you find a problem, fix it, submit a pull request, the team will take it. Pull requests are great when the thing to be fixed or, the, or uh, addressed is relatively small or simple in nature. Right? It can be handled. Uh, within the confines of one or two um, code reviews. For more complicated things where we're going to add new surface area or it's, uh, it's going to be a longer endeavor, 
we do the just passing through model. So this is where, we'll, as I said, we'll add resources to a team. So a team, uh, we, we may take a couple people from a, from a similar domain. It may be the people that actually need the work done. They may, they may need a feature that we don't have, but are willing to contribute to it. They'll come to the team, they'll produce the solution, and then once the team has integrated it and accepted it, they'll go. We find that it's very good to, if you can, physically locate these, uh, these resources with the team. Have them, uh, treat them exactly as if they were on the team, lowers the communication cost and burden, and the work gets done quicker and easier. So that's for slightly more complicated problems. We can, uh, we'll just flex resources temporarily. The hardest one is when you have a problem in a very uh, mission critical domain or in a very complex aspect of the code base where you really want, we really want domain experts uh, thinking about and trying to solve the problem. So, so when, it, when the work needs to be done by a domain expert, we'll still take resources, but they won't work on the key problem at hand. We will use them to work on less, uh, less mission critical aspects of the system to essentially buy slack, right? So this is our form of adding fat to the two pizza team for a temporary basis. So they'll take work off the shoulders of a domain expert. Then that domain expert can go perform the heavy surgery uh, and implement the solution. Then we'll flex resources away and the solution will stay with the domain experts. This is the hardest one to get right and we, we, we try to avoid it when we can, but when it must be done, uh, this is how we do it. It works a lot in the same way as the other one. We're expecting teams to be able to flex those boundaries uh, and to come in and, and to uh, lighten the load so we can get something done. Okay, so we're nearly done. I'll, I'll try and wrap up here quickly. Key points, you know, um, our two pizza team model emerged from our cultural values around wanting to move fast for the customer. So anytime you're thinking about organizational structure or team level structure, you should really start first with what are you trying to optimize for? And that's gonna guide you a lot better than trying to uh, think first about what are the pain points of the existing model. So we very much wanna move quickly and so we try to optimize for, for uh, speed. Uh, the tech matters that our service oriented architecture, uh, hopefully you've gotten a sense of it, complements our ability to get uh, to have the organizational structure we want. I absolutely believe that you cannot have one without the other. You need a culture that is going to be supportive and enforcing of the organizational structure you want. But if you're going to seek a highly decentralized uh, kind of approach and you're a tech company, you really need to think about how you're going to manage that decentralized nature at the technical layer. It, uh, I don't think you can achieve it one or the other. Um, broad changes are hard in our ecosystems because of the uh, um, decentralized nature. Uh, however, they are achievable. There's a lot of ways to manage it, and service-oriented architectures absolutely make it a, an easier lift, and, uh, less, and it's less hard than you may intuitively think it would be. Um, as, as I said, finally, you know, the model works because we have both, right? We, we believe that moving fast for the customer and decentralizing is the right thing, and we've built tech around it. Okay, I think that's all I have. Um, I, I'm gonna be doing this talk one more time. If someone didn't make it to this one, let them know that we can see them again. There are a couple other uh, talks that you might be interested in. Uh, thanks to all these people for letting me steal pictures for my slides, I appreciate it. And uh, that's all I have. Thank you all. Mm -hmm.